The RBA is lifting rates just as other central banks are now becoming more open to the idea of lowering them next year. And maybe the RBA is going to go again. But why? We'll look at that question today. Meanwhile, the Bank of England's Hugh Peel came pretty close to saying that he thinks they will cut next year. Markets are expecting the US to do the same. So today, bond yields are falling again, even in Australia, just as rates are lifted. It's Wednesday, the 8th of November, 2023. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. Well, bond yields are lower today, one day up, one day down. Ten-year treasuries down seven basis points. UK ten-year gilts are down ten basis points, uh, but drops of eight or more basis points for yields across much of Europe as well. Aussie ten years uh, fell three basis points yesterday, down to 4.69%, uh, down another nine on futures overnight. And the US dollar is up 0.3%, with a 0.4% fall in the pound, a 0.2% drop in the euro, the yen down almost 0.2%, but the Aussie down 0.9%, down to 64.3 US cents, still higher than it was at the start of the month, mind you. And US stocks are up seven straight days in the green. The S&P finishing up 0.3%, uh, up 0.9% for the Nasdaq, 0.2% for the Dow. IT and discretionary doing well. Energy stocks well down, about 2.4% lower, in fact. Linked to that, big falls in oil today. WTI is down 4.1%. 4% lower for Brent, well below 82 a barrel now. Uh, you know, we were talking about getting up to 100 not long ago, weren't we? Uh, well, just about everybody was. How wrong we all were. So uh, we'll look at those moves in a moment with uh, JB Weir's Sally Ald in Sydney. First of all, though, the RBA yesterday lifting interest rates by 25 basis points. Everybody knows that old news now, up to 4.35%. Maybe uh, another to come. Michelle Bullock says... Inflation is past its peak. So if that is the case, why the need to keep raising rates? Good morning, Phil. Yes, she did say inflation is past its peak. And I think we've, we've known that for a while. But the challenge for the RBA is that it's not coming down quite as quickly um, as they would like. And that's that's a significant development for them because they've taken this framework where they, they have said, look, we're, we're a bit different to some of our central banking peers and we have more flexibility in our inflation target. So you know what, we're going to use that flexibility and we're going to have quite a long runway to bring inflation down. Um, and the reason we want to do that is because we think if we can be gradual and gentle in that process, then that will help us preserve as many of the job gains that we've been able to deliver over the last couple of years. And I guess end up with the economist version of having your cake and eating it, which is that you get what you want on inflation and, and you get that mm. without causing uh, too much trauma in the broader economy. And and so, you know, I think it's most people would find it sort of difficult to argue with that approach. But I think the trick with that is that it does leave them very exposed with a, a very asymmetric risk bias around inflation. And it means they're going to be highly sensitive to any upside surprises on inflation. Right. You can't afford to have inflation not cooperating with that sort of long, gentle decline. And unfortunately for the RBA, that's exactly what the third quarter inflation numbers suggested, was that inflation wasn't going to come down as quickly as they thought. And I guess the governor had set us up for that in the sense that she'd been pretty vocal in the last few weeks about saying, you know, if we get a material upside surprise, then, uh, you know, we've got pretty low tolerance for that and and we will react with a a hike. And, And that's basically... Um, what we got yesterday. And, and really the hike was just about giving them extra assurance or extra confidence that inflation would now be on the right track to get back to target in a reasonable time right. period. But this possibility that there will be another one, and do we know when that's likely to be, 
Is that simply because the the speed at which inflation is coming down? Then, if if we've peaked, there's the worry that it's going to stay too high for for too long, or why talk of more? Yeah, so I guess I mean that. The statement did water down the tightening bias a little bit, um, and that's why, as you mentioned, the Aussie dollar was lower, bond yields were lower as the market reacted to that slight shift in tone. But effectively, the RBA are data-dependent now, so that means that you know, the case for further rate hikes will be built on you know, what happens to inflation, what happens to the labour market, what happens to the global economy, and also what happens to domestic demand. And they were all called out as specific factors in yesterday's Statement. So I think what that means is that, you know, we, we don't have to worry too much about a rate hike in December because it tells you that the case for the rate hike has to sort of accumulate or it has to build over a couple of months. And, and so that really marks February 2024 as probably the first opportunity for a rate hike. And in fact, our colleagues uh, in NAB Economics think that the RBA will, will go again in, in February next year. So they've, they've put in a 25 basis point rate hike, which would take the cash rate to, to 4.6%. And I think the rationale for that is just, you know, and I think this has been the, the broad theme in Australia, which is that you know, policy hasn't been tight enough. So the economy has performed better than the RBA thought in the first six months of this year. The labour market's performed better than they expected, unemployment rate holding pretty close to cyclical lows. And some of those inflation measures looking a little bit sticky and, and not so cooperative. And I guess if we get a repeat of those sorts of dynamics in the next couple of months, then um, it would make sense for the RBA to, to go again. And if they did go again, then we start to look at a, a sort of a situation where we have a cash rate in Australia that looks a bit closer to the cash rate that we, we observe in you know some of our peer economies. So I don't think it's a coincidence that in places like UK, Canada, US, New Zealand, you know, their cash rates are sort of clustered somewhere between five and five and a half percent. And when we look at the unemployment rate trajectories in those economies, it feels like that's starting to work. So mm. rates are high, policy is restrictive, labour markets are loosening up. That's a magic um, number. And yet in Australia, yeah, we mm, haven't got there yet. We've been well below that, yeah. and you know our labour market's still pretty tight. So I think the, in a relative sense at least, the message might be well. You know, yes, there are differences in the monetary policy transmission mechanism across all these economies, but it's unlikely that they account for the, the full sort of 100 basis point plus spread between us and everyone else. And maybe what that does tell us is that a cash rate needs to be a bit higher here in order to engineer the same sort of outcomes that we're seeing in other countries. So is that, the, you know, where everyone else is, is that the magic number or is that a bit too high? Because we are now, you know, as we've been seeing over the last week or two, markets looking as though, uh, you know, this expectation that rates will start coming down next year, you know, whereas the talk was higher mm. for longer. And that has to be the, you know, an expectation that, you know, perhaps they've just gone a little bit too far. So uh, in the US, uh, yields back down again. Fed speakers still trying to talk them up, of course. Uh, but the, the market's obviously still fixated with that weaker labour data that we saw last week. Uh, and very little expectation of a December hike, obviously, but still people looking to, to, to seeing cuts middle of next year. Yeah, that's right. So the, the US market's sort of gone back to pricing in, you know, basically 100 basis points of cuts through to January of 2025, which is almost where we were um, a couple of weeks ago before Powell came out and started talking about, you know, higher for longer and, and the, the dots from the September meeting basically reflected, um, you know, not as much scope or possibility for rate cuts in 2024 and into 2025. So we've done a bit of a round trip on that that whole story and it feels like 
the market again has embraced sort of the soft landing narrative and and also believes that you know that'll that'll give the Fed scope to to cut rates again. Um, <clears throat> so we'll see on that, and I think the labour market's going to be a really key determinant of of you know how quickly the the cuts come because in some economies I think you know like the UK and and also you know perhaps Canada you know unemployment rates are about. 70 basis points above their cyclical lows. So it feels like, you know, there's a, a genuine trend there, a little bit less so in, in the US and New Zealand. Um, but if, if those unemployment rates continue to track higher, that'll give central banks confidence that you know, the economy is slowed enough to bring inflation down. And maybe yeah. the case for quite restrictive policy is not as strong as, as it is right now. And yet, uh, trade numbers yesterday from the US very strong, weren't they? Input, imports have gone from a, a revised 314 billion in August to 323 billion in September, which is actually the highest since February. Exports also up from 255 to 261 billion, which is the highest since the the middle of last year. And of course, you know, a chunk of that is because prices have gone up, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So the trade balance um, or the deficit wider in in September in the US, but I think you know uh, below all that sort of volatility, I think the the sort of conclusion or the one line story is that probably is not going to make that much of a difference to the third quarter GDP numbers, um, you know, which most economists estimate are going to, you know, uh, are going to continue to be strong. We've got the first uh, read on those coming up. So, you know, some, some big moves in exports and imports, but on net, probably not that consequential for the broader growth outlook. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, also looking good for Canada, but your point again, you know, exports have gone up by a couple of billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so quickly, it doesn't really account to much uh, when it's, uh, you know, it all comes out in the wash, doesn't it? But let's look at trade data for China, because that was quite compelling. So exports down 6.4% in October, year on year, much worse than forecast. Uh, imports are up. Uh, not a great deal. So, what do you make out of that? That big fall in exports? Yeah, it was it was a mixed um, data release yesterday, and I think probably speaks to you know obviously the the Chinese economy has just been beating to a completely different drum relative to everyone else, pretty much globally. And I think that's what these trade data um, actually reflect. So, if you look at exports, they were softer than expected, and the weak, weakness was pretty broad based. So, exports were down to the US, to Europe, to Japan, to EM Asia. So broad weakness in in the export story there, which is I think consistent with this idea that you know global growth is is slowing, and most people think sort of fourth quarter GDP outcomes are going to be quite a bit softer than they were in the third quarter, um, and then in contrast, you know imports bounced, and so you know maybe the the interpretation there is that that's reflecting the stabilisation in the Chinese economy. You know, maybe we're starting to see the impact of some of the stimulus policies that have been put in place by Chinese authorities. And so you've got a story of, um, you know, I guess, pretty desynchronized cycles. So maybe China's bottoming out and growth is a bit stronger. And that contrasts with, I think, the the sort of broad narrative around, you know, especially around Europe um, and some other major economies globally. What's interesting, I think, about those China trade numbers is that when you look at, you know, Chinese exports as a proportion of overall global exports, basically pretty stable at around 15%. And I think that's interesting in the context of all this talk about, you know, reshoring and, and sort of firms taking factories out of China and putting them elsewhere, sort of telling you that, um, you know, that's probably going to be a pretty slow process at best. And at the moment, the trade numbers are suggesting that hasn't made much of a dent in 
China's overall proportion of global exports. That could take decades, couldn't it, if we were being honest? It could. So what, what about oil then? Is that in response to those Chinese numbers? Because oil obviously has been pretty volatile lately, but it seems like uh, it's ignoring geopolitical uh, factors. I guess, you know, if things were going to explode further in the Middle East, they would have done so already. So maybe that's why oil is down today. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I think you know most people's sort of knee jerk reaction would have been to think that oil has to go higher, um, you know, in in the context of that geopolitical conflict, um, mm. and and that and we are going the other way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hasn't been the case. And in fact, when you look back, you know, over time and look at the sort of conflict in that region, you know, most of those conflicts haven't really meant that much for the oil price. And I think mm. you know our our view has been that you know you really need that conflict to broaden out and for Iran to become explicitly involved in the conflict, and that would draw in the U.S. in a more um, in, a, in a in a greater fashion. And I think that would set the scene for um, you know potentially a higher oil price and to date you know, so, that hasn't really so this happened is just, so this is just the economic slowdown that's driving the price down then. Yeah, yeah it could be um in the sense that you know we all, we know that china already owns a lot of oil so you know yes maybe mm. their imports were stronger and, and part of that was a commodity story but i'm not sure that there's um there's a, a sort of meaningful pickup in demand from from china and if anything you know the the export data sort of reflected a weaker economy with lower exports going to you know most of the world's bigger economies so perhaps that was that was what was driving the the decline in the oil price but it could just also be some short-term positioning you know people might have have, have been running long positions because they thought that the conflict would be you know broadly supportive for the oil price that hasn't happened and you know as they as they get out of those positions yep. um it can push oil lower in the short term so uh is governor Ureda getting what he wants uh from those numbers yesterday household spending and the uh, earnings numbers out so the average cash earnings are up 1.2 percent year on year up from 0.8 percent mm. the month before household mm. spending down 2.8 percent year on year so, uh, you know, why would he need to even think about lifting interest rates uh, in, in an environment like that? People are able to cope a little better with, with inflation because they're earning a bit less, but it's not going to run away because people are spending less. I'm talking about Japan, by the way. Yeah, so, and I think the, the sort of piece of information that squares that circle is just that when we look at household income in real terms, that was actually down in year on year. So mm. that might mm. that might sort of explain why household consumption was a bit was a bit weaker. But yes, I mean, I think, you know, until there's a, a, a sort of more explicit I guess, link between some of that wage growth and some of the price pressures, then yeah, it doesn't really put too much pressure on, on the Bank of Japan to do anything but the most gradual of normalisations of, you know, what are pretty extreme policy settings in Japan. Yeah. All right. Now, UK bond yields, very quickly, we're running out of time. Their yields are well down today. Uh, there's a 10-year mm. government uh, auction overnight as well, uh, which delivered a lower yield from 4.44%. Last time they had an auction down to 4045 uh, and yields down generally. The market seems to be responding to Hugh Peel, suggesting from the Bank of England that they could start lowering rates in the middle of next year. So even central banks are starting to say it now. Uh, well, he actually said expectations for cuts were not unreasonable. Mm, were his mm. uh, were his were his words. So he's not talking it up. So we're even now starting to see this change in attitude coming from central banks. So that's a bit of a change. It is a bit of a change, and I guess that's probably as close as you'll ever get from a central banker to you know endorsing yes. market pricing. So you know, which was effectively for cuts in the back half of of next year. And I guess the other key point of his 
his comments was that, you know, yes, UK inflation has looked like a bit of an outlier compared to everyone else, but don't worry too much about that because good news is is only um, really just around the corner. And, you know, he made the case of saying we should get in October inflation numbers that show UK inflation below 5%. And so I think he's sort of saying that'll put us more on par with what we're seeing in, in comparable economies. So that's a good thing. And, um, you know, on their current set of forecasts, which I think came out very recently, they've got, um, you know, headline inflation at 2% by the end of 2025. So pushing out a little bit the time it takes to get there. But, um, you know, that's that's a that's consistent with the inflation target. And, and like you said, you know, maybe depending on what happens, opens up the possibility that if by the middle of next year, we're pretty confident that inflation's on that right trajectory, well, then maybe we don't need rates, um, you know, above 5% and there is some scope for modest easing. Yeah, as the mortgage rate, the British Bankers Association says the mortgage rate now, what people are actually paying, ticked up over 8% from 7.93% mm. in September. So a lot of people will be relieved if it does start coming down middle of next year. Uh, look, Andrew Bailey is talking later on today as well. Logan, uh, Fed's uh, another Fed speaker uh, as well overnight tonight. Uh, the two-year inflation expectation for New Zealand, uh, really we're sort of like clutching at straws for any information today. It's a pretty low, uh, low news day today ahead, so uh, let's enjoy it while we can. Uh, good to talk. We'll catch you again very soon. Thanks, Sally. Cheers. Thanks, Phil. And that is it. Middle of the week. That's Wednesday morning's morning call from NAB. I'm Phil Dobby. I'm back here again tomorrow morning. I hope you will be too. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening.